Welcome everyone to Conversations in Cybersecurity. I am your host, Tim Erlen. And today I wanna to talk a little bit about where our focus is in cybersecurity. Um, we're, we're often focused when we look at the media coverage on the latest exploit or vulnerability, new actors, novel attacks tend to get all the attention. But I think it's important for us as both vendors and practitioners to take a step back once in a while and look at the trends that have occurred in this industry that has existed for you know, a couple of decades at this point. So for this conversation today, I've asked James Potter to join me. James is the founder and CEO of DSE, uh, which provides security assessments and other cybersecurity consulting. He's been conducting assessments and collecting data for almost a decade. So I think he'll be a really great uh, contributor to the conversation here. So James, welcome and thank you for, for joining me. Hi, thanks, Sam. Appreciate being on here, man. This is uh, my first podcast, so uncharted territory for me here. Yeah, it's great. I'm excited to have you. So one of the things that, that always frustrates me in how cybersecurity incidents are reported is how much focus is placed on the malware involved versus the initial attack vector. Uh, I see a lot of articles that sort of dig into the malware or even the threat actor in some cases, but they just kind of ignore how that attacker actually started that attack, their, their initial vector for entry. What is your data that you've been collecting say about trends around that initial point of compromise? So this one's actually really interesting. Um, we're, DSE aggregates a lot of data sets, anything that's uh, you could consider OSN or open source intelligence data. Uh, and we store it and, and archive it over time. And what we're seeing uh, through those data sets and our own client engagements is really actually pretty pretty fascinating. So we're seeing valid account attacks dropping uh, significantly over over the past three years. And, and when I say valid account attacks, that's you know, threat actor has Bob's username, threat actor has Bob's password, and uh, mm -hmm. is trying to compromise the environment. That's a, a valid account attack, right? Because it's an attack that focuses around known credentials that function within that environment. And that used to be about thirty percent of all attacks uh, going back to like 2019, 2020. Uh, but now it's closer to, to 15 at, at the end of 2022. So it's decreased by 50% over, over three years, which is tremendous. And, and what this tells us is that, you know, MFA is working. Uh, and this is great confirmation to see this, right? And because MFA is working, these valid account attacks are, are just dropping so significantly. And in their stead, we're seeing phishing and social engineering uh, raising dramatically. That's you know, north of 40% of all attacks now. Uh, where vulnerability scanning and traditional, you know, exploit uh, is, you know, around 35 to 40%, right? The remaining attacks being uh, unknown or, or hardware-based attacks, but those are really uh, just in the margins. Well, and so are those, it, that, those, top, those three, vulnerability scanning and exploit, phishing, social engineering, and valid accounts or stolen credentials, however you want to put that, are those kind of the top three initial attack vectors that you see as a whole? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's that's how threat actors are getting in, right? Because it, it's harder and harder to get into environments because people are, are actually, um, you know, deploying MFA and it's it's working over time. And that's a really well, neat metric to see in the numbers. Yeah, I want to emphasize that because so often in cybersecurity we feel like we're we're you know fighting a losing battle, and we introduce new security controls and technology advances, and the attackers continue to adapt, and it feels like no matter what we do, we're not making progress. But this is an example where in one of the top three initial attack vectors, it seems like a security control that has, has grown in adoption over the last three years has made a significant material impact in the use of that, that, that mechanism for, for an initial 
uh, initial foothold. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the downside there, though, is that mean time to identify attackers and mean time to contain them has not been getting better. Like we're, we're averaging north of 200 days uh, as of, you know, Q1 in 2023, just to identify attackers. Now, you think about that, that's 200 days. That's, <laughs> that's almost three quarters, right? And then time to contain after you identify is still like 60, 70 days. So if you add those two together, you, you have three quarters basically of a threat actor running around your environment. So while MFA is working, you know, we're not getting better at detection and containment over time, or we're not getting better compared to the threat actors, right? So each are escalating up their games and the threat actors are winning here. Yeah, so how should we think about the combination of those those two data points? If, you know, improved deployment of MFA is, is decreasing the number of uh, successful initial compromises using stolen credentials, but we're not really making progress on time to identify and time to contain, um, does that mean that that we're are we seeing fewer successful attacks? Do you think, or is it that the attackers have shifted tactics, and so we've just traded one one tactic, you know, for another for an increase in phishing, as an example? You, you hit it on the on, on the head right there. So the attacks aren't going down. That would be great, but that's that's definitely not what's happening. They're just shifting. So as threat actors are not able to leverage valid account attacks, you know, all the stolen credential databases that they're purchasing are losing value because they, they're they wrapped in MFA and you don't have the MFA, it doesn't help you. So they're just shifting their focus to phishing, social engineering, uh, vulnerability scaling and exploit. You know, phishing and social engineering especially saw a really, really big rise at the start of COVID when everyone was remote, right? Because it allowed yeah. that that story of, oh, hey, I'm working remote now. I don't know how to do this thing. Can you just you know tell me this password or what do I need to do to get this unlocked? And it's more believable of a story. So those have been increasing and we're, we're north of 40%. So the total attacks are, are still going up. It's just what your your initial attack types are uh, that's that's kind of shifting. Yeah, so I, I, I was feeling better and now I'm feeling worse. That's kind of what? But, <laughs> yeah, there's always good and bad, I suppose. I suppose. I mean, I, I, but I want to distinguish between total attacks and successful attacks. I think that's an important important distinction because I, I would expect attacks will always go up. But I think you're saying successful attacks have continued to increase as well and that phishing has kind of, is that right? Right. Yeah, and phishing, phishing is the big one there. That, that's the one that saw the, the largest increase of market share over the past two or three years. So because mm -hmm. because it, it works and it's it's low cost and it's low risk uh, and it, it 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 just works and MFA helps there but it it doesn't get you all the way. Well, and if I look at those top three, you know, vulnerability exploits, phishing, valid accounts, there's a relationship between valid valid accounts or stolen credentials and phishing in that the way to get around MFA um, is often a you know some kind of social engineering or phishing campaign. Right? Yeah, you can fish your way around it, right? You call the right right support person, have the right story, uh, don't send any red flags, and they have access to your MFA, right? They can just flip the bits on their side. So MFA yeah. definitely helps, but you know if your your service desk and help desk aren't prepared for these types of phishing attacks, uh, then you're you're still going to have that compromise. It might just take a little yeah. bit longer. We actually had this happen with one of our customers relatively recently. And uh, MFA helped stop it, which was a nice takeaway. Yeah, there was a another story I heard um, because you know in cybersecurity we're always good at repeating stories we heard uh, as anecdotes about you know it's um it's sort of the authentication fatigue right if you 
pick off work hours and you continue sending authentication messages to someone's phone just repeatedly, eventually they'll get tired of clicking no and just hit yes to make it go away. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's uh, that, that's kind of an interesting one, really. And the, the other kind of evolution of that landscape is really going to start moving to attacking people's phones directly, right? Because everyone has their mobile phones. Everyone has apps on there that are just wildly insecure. And eventually there's going to be these comprehensive networks of, okay, well, I want to pay to get into Bob Smith's MFA on his phone. Someone has that phone compromised and, you know, there's going to be a one-time portal where you yeah. go and send them 500 bucks or a thousand bucks. Now you have access to Bob's MFA. I think we're still a little ways off from that, but that's where it's headed. Well, I think, I mean, those, those exploits obviously exist, but the, the market, if you think about the, the market that exists for stolen credentials, it, it, it of course is, you know, it's it's a robust market, we could say. Um, and it followed, uh, you know, the increasing number of compromises of credentials and those credentials became valuable. The same thing is likely to happen with, with uh, access to mobile devices and MFA. It's just not there yet. Like the exploits exist, but the market doesn't exist yet. Yeah, it's, it's, it's around the corner. And that'll be interesting to see if at that point, if the phones become more hardened. Or if we see a shift away from these mobile authenticators back to like a, a traditional RSA fob or something like that, it's going to be really fascinating to see how it unfolds. I've got to imagine that it's going to be solved in the context of the mobile device. Because, I, I mean, for a, for a highly secure, uh, you know, very security, very risk averse organization, a physical fob might make sense. But it's a hard thing to get people to adopt sort of it's expensive. day to day. Yeah, and it's... Basis. And it has turnaround, right? Your 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 RSA fob or whatever brand fob you have stops working. Now now what do you do, right? So that's that's busted. Now you have to call in the help desk and get a new one. And now that's a whole another way to fish a company, convincing them to send you a fob. <laughs> yep, yeah, <laughs> yep, yeah, for sure. That's a that's a good. That's you're absolutely right. And it's it's even more complicated or more exploitable with the you know increased remote working situation. Um, where people aren't in an office as much anymore. And so that kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, that kind of social engineering is, is a little easier to, to perpetrate. And it's not like there haven't been hardware attacks with the fobs either. I mean, uh, at one point, uh, keys leaked for some popular vendors, and then they had to resend all their fobs effectively. So there's yeah. there's weaknesses no matter what solution you, you, know, you can kind of pursue there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, so I'm going to try and come back to a little bit of optimism because I think... I think it's still worth calling out that with MFA as a control, we as an industry effectively implemented a security control that made a material difference in a particular type of attack. And yes, it shifted that attack to something else or shifted those attackers to something else, but it's still an example of where a security control made a difference. And I'm I'm struggling a little bit, I mean, to think of other examples where that's the case. I, I think, I mean, my mind goes back to sort of the initial uh, you know, growth of, of firewalls as an industry. Um, but it, can you think of other controls that, that we as an industry have put in place that made sort of a real material difference the same way MFA has in this case? Um, I'm going to sound like the optimist this time, Tim. So user training, right? And just awareness of what phishing attacks are and, and how they function and the, the associated risks. You know, large companies, Fortune Fortune 1000s, Fortune 500s are are doing user training and it's improving their ability to recognize when uh, email is, uh, no pun intended, but a, a little fishy, right? Mm -hmm. And they're doing all sorts of really interesting programs. We had we had one customer, uh, and this one was really neat. I, I like this one uh, a lot. Uh, they would they would send out 
internal phishing training emails in the in the form of a, a phishing attack effectively. So everyone in the company or a subset of people in the company get an email saying, just a reminder, you know, Friday is Jeans Day, but you have to click here and, and register. And if you click <laughs> there, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have to you have to register if you want to wear jeans days. Well, it, it got people though, right? So when anyone who clicked on that uh, that email, you know, got got fished internally and signed themselves up for like a you know a week of security training. And over time, people got really really suspect on what to click on and what not to click on, simply because everyone knew about it when they clicked on it. It became public data, so everyone knew that Bob Smith did something dumb, and no one wants to be that person on that internal billboard of people that did something dumb. And it uh, it helped it, it, uh, to the point where it's actually, I think, to a certain extent, you know, hindering the customer because now when they sent out internal bulletins, no one wanted to click on the links. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've seen that phenomenon in in organizations I've worked for where you have to send out a, you know, a pre-email to declare that you're going to send an email with a link in it, and it's a real link. And I'm surprised I I haven't seen a two sort of a two-stage, uh, you know, phishing test that does the same thing. Um, that's certainly something that I'd expect. It's only a matter of time till threat actors catch up with the trends, right? And for, right. for spear phishing, like really targeted attacks, they could leverage that if they knew how it functioned internally within that org. So it appear even more authentic. So it's it's this fun cat and mouse game that's gonna go on you know, basically forever until we get you know really good biometrics wrapped into it and you're authing with you know something you are and something you have. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, you know, it's a worth a reminder that phishing, we always use email as an example for phishing, and email is still very prevalent, but there's a, a plenty of, of SMS-based phishing or smishing that occurs as well. Um, there are lots of stories in the market about, um, you know, the, the text from the CEO who needs your help, and that help somehow involves buying gift cards, um, which, you know, seems immediately suspicious to me, but it does happen. And it, it's, it's all about volume. So uh, I, I spent some time at Microsoft years ago over on uh, the wind phone project that kind of dates how long ago it was i suppose uh, but that one i as soon as i i joined up i was getting at least every week or two i was getting a, a an attempted phishing attack whether it's through email or voice or or, or whatever it was because they knew i was at microsoft they knew i was working in active directory security so they they knew i was a good target and they, they never yeah. gave up you know I, I kept getting them pretty regularly sometimes it'd even be the same person calling me yeah, because there's there's little cost. It's such a low cost opportunity for an attacker to take. <laughs> a couple of weeks back, I got a I got a text, uh, you know, from from my CEO uh, who was standing right next to me at the time. <laughs> you know, said, "Are you available?" And then, of course, the you know their full name, uh, which you would know if they were your CEO. But uh, you know, I just showed it to him. I'm like, "Look," and he's like, "Yeah." That's it happens. happens. That actually brings us to one of our like more common uh, uh, metrics of for initial breach. So when when someone pops your email, the very first thing they're they're doing is impersonation of senior executive emails. So it's like almost fifty percent of what happens there, according to our our data sets and what we've seen at customers. So just like you said, they're pretending to be a C level and they're trying to get you to click something to uh, ex expand their ability to fish. Uh, below yeah, that, yeah. it's impersonation and like altered reply to, you know, standard, standard kind of stuff there. And then um, email, email account of employees. So they're trying to move laterally in the email system. Once they get somebody else, they're trying to spread from there to kind of get their hooks in. Do you, do you see organizations um, moving away from email as a whole in a meaningful way? And does it, does it impact the, 
the attacker behavior that you've seen? I'm thinking about how internal comms have moved largely to things like Teams and Slack. Um, so I would never expect an email as much as I would expect a Slack message kind of thing. That's that's an interesting takeaway. No, no, that's that's that is really interesting. So typically for for a lot of the orgs we work with, email is extremely important. Right? It's it's the lifeblood for how people store their their data and, and everything, right? Um, so they, mm -hmm. everything sits in in email. It's extremely extremely important. Now chat's been bringing getting a lot of momentum, whether it's you know Gchat or, or Teams or you know whatever you're doing. And, and right now there's not a lot of built-in federation with those kind of messengers. But we're seeing it more with uh, more with teams specifically as people on board to O365. You're by default, yeah. you know, federated with all these other teams deployments. So you can message someone at a different company over teams. And uh, by default, those messages get through. Now you can lock those down, of course, and you know, prevent external you know, attachments and external links and all that like, it's good stuff. Um, but I think as that becomes more popular, you know, we're going to see more phishing attacks, you know, over over chat. Yeah, that's interesting. I wasn't thinking about the federation aspect of it as much as, you know, in a in a less federated instance, you would you would be somewhat insulated from the internal um, impersonation because of of that messaging infrastructure. But you're right, as it's as you as it's increasingly federated, and you have more connections to external entities in the in the the messenger application or the chat application, you're going to end up with the same kinds of impersonation problems you have in email. Yeah, and it's it's the, the old age-old balance between security and usability, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, all of this is is super interesting, you know, about the types of attacks and the attack vectors. But ultimately, the reason that we care about these these breaches and their impact is is that they they cost money for an organization. That they they incur a cost, whether it's a you know a cost in terms of loss of data or a cost in terms of um, uh, you know, regulatory fines. And, and I think you have some data about what the cost of breaches has been doing in, in the recent past as well. What does that data look like? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not getting, it's not getting better. Uh, we did see insurance, cyber insurance companies this past year did reduce their premiums by about 10%, which is, you know, good news. But breach costs are, are still going up. Uh, global breach costs are around 5 million per incident. And US-based breach costs are, are north of nine. I think it's about nine and a half million per, per breach. And those those seem like small numbers, but those those are just any breach, right? They're not yeah. they're not mega breaches. We talk about mega breaches, we're talking about you know companies that you have lost, you know, north of 10 million records up to like 60 million records. Sure. You might think about uh, Equifax or Experian there, right? I mean, they both got hit with with mega breaches that were were two and a half. 2.5x their their actual yearly revenue. So when Experian got hit, they they lost all their revenue for two and a half years. The you know, same thing yeah. with with Equifax, and those are just just debilitating uh, levels of compromise there. And then we have other ones which are still very large, but uh, like like Facebook, right? That was you know around four billion thereabouts. So th those averages that you were talking about, do you, do you think the the higher average in the I think it was the United States you said. Is that higher average driven by those mega breaches contributing to it, or is there something else that 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 makes the average in the U.S. higher than outside? So the the U.S. average is higher because the, the companies have more to lose and they have um, more more ability to pay out ransomware, right? Uh, for the the demand side of that. Mm -hmm. So you look at all things being equal, a, a company with a thousand people working in the U.S. and a company with a, a thousand people you know, working in say like France or Australia. 
the thousand person company in the US is going to have significantly more resources and assets at their disposal on average using you know, statistical analysis than uh, the, the, the other companies. So when we talk about global average, we're really talking about the entire world, like EMEA, APAC, uh, the whole kind of kit there. And so sure, yeah. breaches in the US are about twice as expensive as they are for like the global average. And you kind of see those the same kind of monetary metrics roll their way into like uh, average average value of a user for like an application or something like that. Um, U.S. still has a significant market portion there, so they they get targeted as the money is there. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So uh, let's let's um, let's round out this conversation with maybe a little bit of of advice for folks. Um, you know, since since DSE conducts security assessments, um, I'm curious what advice you would give for organizations that that um, you know what should they do to better best prepare to get the most out of those security assessments. I figure they're they're an investment in time, and so as an organization, you know, what 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 can they do to to make it the most worthwhile investment uh, possible? Well, I have a, I certainly have a bias here because it's it's a product that that we sell. Uh, but my advice would be to have them done regularly, if you can, by the, the same vendor you have been using and request metrics on it, right? Where were we a year or two ago compared to now? Are things getting better or are things getting worse? Because this gives companies kind of a, a snapshot of their environmental health and, and where to focus on and, and what to look at. You're never going to fix everything. And, and perfect is the enemy of enemy of good. Uh, those Those are important kind of aspects to take away here. Uh, but having those snapshots lets you know, like, oh, hey, I need to focus more on, you know, my user security, or I need to focus more on my my physical security or my network security. Having these assessments gives you an idea as a, a leader on where you should be spending resources to get the biggest bang for your buck. Because you can't do everything. You need to focus on what's going to have the best return. That's really interesting. Thinking about it as, as more than just a snapshot, but the opportunity to 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 produce some trend data over time um, is, is great advice, I think. Listen, James, I wanna thank you for spending time with, with me today. I think it was an interesting conversation. I love talking about data, about cybersecurity. So there were some interesting points in there and uh, I think I'm still, I'm still feeling at least a little optimistic after the conversation. So I appreciate that. Well, hey, I uh, hope everyone listening at home enjoyed it as well. Thanks.